This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Lefstetz Podcast. My guest today is Dana Frank, President and CEO of First Avenue, also President of the Board of NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association. So, Dana, tell me about this new legislation about ticketing, the Fans First Act. Thanks, Bob. I'm excited to be here. Um, We have introduced at the end of 2023 the Fans First Act, led by Senators Cornyn and Klobuchar with Senators Lujan, Welsh, Wicker, and Blackburn. Um, It's a real no-nonsense, no-brainer ticketing legislation that you know, attempts to get tickets into the hands of real fans at fair prices and tries to cut down on some of the predatory and deceptive practices and has some transparent measures that everyone seems to like, like all-in pricing and reinforces the BOTS Act and is one step of the puzzle that will go a long way towards really um, protecting our fans and making sure that people who want to go to the concerts actually get the tickets. You say one piece of the puzzle. What might the other pieces be? Oh, there's a number of different legislative solutions, uh, you know, in terms of ticketing. And, you know, everyone after uh, Taylor Swift last year seems to think they're an expert in ticketing. And so a lot of folks had their own, you know, solutions. Um, You know, so this is what we think is a bipartisan kind of no-brainer first piece of the puzzle. So tell me about some of the elements in the act. Right. So first we have all-in pricing with itemization, which is important, I think, in our industry and with the artist groups so that fans know, yes, what is the total price they're going to pay for the ticket, but also what are the fees and you know what's the face value and what's the artist charging for the tickets. Um, and then we also have uh, some protections against predatory and deceptive practices like I, uh, uh, deceptive websites and 
folks that are creating Facebook groups, you know, kind of presuming that they're the official ticket sellers or the artists when they're not. Um, we have some reinforcements to the Bots Act. We have uh, an opt-in solution. So when people buy on the secondary market, that they can opt in to receive communications from the artists and from the ticket sellers directly. So in terms of canceled shows or moved times, you know, it's a huge problem where if we're hosting a show, we don't know sometimes 40, 50% of the ticket buyers who are actually coming to the show. So we have no way of communicating any kind of changes in the shows with them. Um, and so we also have a study that would go more in depth into some of the other issues within ticketing, like, you know, how many re how many tickets that are resold on the secondary market, how many of those are by brokers and how, how many of those are by folks that just can't get a babysitter and can't go to the show. Okay. Let's try to drill a little deeper. So in terms of deceptive advertising, let's say your tickets are on Ticketmaster just to make it simple. When you Google frequently, that's not the first hit. You get something from a broker or something. So how would this legislation address that, if at all? Yep. Yeah. So it has a ban on using IP, either venue or artist or promoter IP in uh, organic search and advertising and promotion. So, you know, if sometimes you'll Google um, and you'll see the venue or the official website, sometimes it comes down even on like the second page of, of Google. And so the first six, seven, eight hits are all resellers. Um, and so this would say in organic searches, uh, promotions, marketing, things like those Facebook groups that folks create and say, oh, get your official tickets here. Well, that wouldn't be allowed anymore. And there's pretty stiff penalties when it comes to enforcing the act so that it actually is enforceable. Let's talk very practically. So now I'm searching for tickets. Will I see the authorized reseller first, or is it just that the other ones, it will be clearer that they're secondary market? What will I actually see if I'm a relatively unsophisticated buyer? So you will still see the Google ad words, the, the purchased words first. And so that might be a secondary seller. However, if, you know, I don't want to presume that everybody has their SEO optimization down, but the first or second should be the official seller below the ads, the purchased ads. Okay. Tell us a little bit more about secondaries not being able to use primary IP. Yeah. So things like, like I said, those Facebook groups or things like using the venue name to advertise or the artist name to advertise you know, we have to allow for them to actually advertise what it is they're selling, right? They have to be able to use that name. But in terms of like advertising and promotions, that would not be allowable. Can you give me an example? Yeah. Um, you know, if they're sending out an email blast in the header, it's like, buy all of your First Avenue tickets here, right? So what would be allowable is like a line listing and a description of the actual product, but not the use of that IP in overall marketing and promotions. Okay. Now you talked about enforcement. Talk about the previous bots act enforcement there and what would be different today. Right. So, you know, what we, when we first started thinking about legislative solutions for ticketing issues, what we heard really clearly is there has to be pretty stiff monetary penalties because 
anyone from state AGs to official, you know, government officials without financial penalties, there's very little motivation or resources to go after perpetrators. So we have in the bill, it's believe, don't quote me on this. I believe it's a thousand dollars a day, up to $10,000 per ticket for the violation. Um, and so that's a, a pretty stiff. So if you're looking at the, a violation of an overall website with thousands of tickets, that number gets to be pretty, pretty strict pretty quickly. Okay. It's one thing to have the law on the books. It's another thing to have it enforced. You know, in terms of crime, usually ticketing is far from the top. So what would ensure that law enforcement would actually act on this? That is a great question. I think it's going to be the loud voice of our industry having this law and having the financial penalties and having, you know, also in, in the law, there's a website that anyone can go to report the violations and really making sure that it is enforced. But that's certainly been an issue with with every piece of ticketing legislation that's passed. Okay. So what is the status of the bill now? Yep. So we introduced at the end of December, um, excited to get it introduced. Timing-wise, it was like right before the recess. So we're actively securing co-sponsors. We have um, a number of whom in the hopper and are, you know, really excited by the momentum um, and hopefully we'll be able to introduce the the new co-sponsor soon. Um, And there's also a piece of legislation in the House called the Ticket Act that has the similar provisions of the Fans First Act. Um, And also, I forgot to mention spec tickets. Everybody, I think, in the industry, you know, if you don't know what a spec ticket is, it's when they astronomical amounts on the secondary markets, $20,000, $10,000, maybe even $100, but it's when uh, somebody has posted a ticket for sale that doesn't actually exist yet, right? They're posted before the actual on sale or in seats that don't exist, et cetera. Um, So this would actually make the practice of spec tickets illegal. It would allow for a concierge service, which would allow for a consumer, if they can't get online at Tuesday at 10 a.m., to be able to kind of, quote unquote, hire a broker or such to go and secure the tickets for them but the listings would have to be separately from tickets. The pricing would have to delineate between the service and the ticket fee. Um, And so excited, very excited to ban this much hated practice. Okay. Let's go back. You know, you're very familiar with the legislative process. Many people are not. Let's go back to the beginning and with Klobuchar, who's your state Senator, Minnesota, how did this legislation come to be? So we started seeing after reopening, I would end of 2021, really beginning of 2022, um, amongst the Neva folks that our drop rates just weren't really recovering. Okay, wait, wait, just a little bit slower because there's a lot of things going on. Tell us about Neva. Sure. So Neva is the National Independent Venue Association. We came together late March, early April after the COVID shutdowns had completely you know, ended our our business and our ability to generate any revenue whatsoever. Um, and we banded together both for knowledge sharing and community and <laughs> trauma bonding, as people would say, um, but also to pass legislation that would allow us the resources to ensure that we're able to reopen when it was safe to do so. We have, I believe, about 1,200 members 
um, in every state, every congressional district, ranging from, you know, 50 capacity coffee shops all the way up to amphitheaters um, and independent venues that uh, generate the majority of the revenue by selling tickets. That's the qualifications. Okay. How did you end up being the president of the board? That is a great question. Um, I, maybe because no one else wanted to do it. Um, I was the one that was really uh, passionate about a federal bill and kind of led the charge on the advocacy effort. And because advocacy really was the, you know, first, second, and third priority, uh, you know, realizing that there would be no venues in which to have an association if we didn't get this bill passed. Um, the the five, the four other folks that were on the board um, elected me president. Okay, let's go back. You're sitting at home, locked down. There are no shows. Tell me about the genesis of Neva and your role in it. So it was actually Reverend Moose and Marauder that called folks together on a town hall. I think the first the first one was actually a conference call. I don't even know if anyone knew what Zoom was yet. And it was, I believe, maybe for end of February, first week of March, um, to just hear from, from folks in Europe what they were seeing um, and really kind of give a warning signal. And so I started joining those early calls. And then when it went to Zoom, seeing the other faces on there and realizing that, you know, these are all people with families, with lives, with houses, with um, obligations, and we were all going to be out of work and and in severe debt with absolutely no way to repay any of our obligations um, unless we did something about it. Now, to what degree was there an organization prior to this amongst the independents? Oh, there was no organization. I think, you know, people were, they would talk, but with very, you know, with guards up. You know, I kind of made it a habit whenever I traveled, I would always reach out to the independent promoter, the the club owner in town just to get a tour and just to try to learn from them and see what they're doing. And I feel like I was always greeted with a little bit of like, are you coming into my city? What do you, what do you want to talk to me for? Um, and so there was certainly a lot of, uh, we knew about each other, but I don't think there was a lot of, you know, uh, knowledge sharing or real kind of deep uh, community amongst them. Um, and that changed real fast. Okay. So now everybody's on a Zoom. How do you organize and how do you set an agenda? Very messily. <laughs> Those early meetings were, they were pretty frantic, pretty desperate. Um, and the way it came together, it, it really self-organized. And I think when you're in a situation that is, you know, a little bit like war, a little bit like there's no alternative. It really, people really wanted to help and there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, arguments or dissensions. It really was like, okay, we need to do this. Who's going to do it? Great. You're going to do it. Um, and also, you know, again, kudos to Reverend Moose, who was our early executive director and Hal Real from World Cafe. Why don't you tell people who he is? He has a marketing firm out of uh, New York called Marauder, and he was he brought Independent Venue Week across from the UK, and so he was the just again the perfect person to really gather everybody because he a didn't have a venue, so wasn't seen you know as a a competitor, but also 
was already in communication with all the independent venues in town due to independent venue week. Okay. So now everybody's talking. How do you set the agenda? So really it's centered around, we need to get this bill passed. Okay. What do we need to do to get a bill passed? Well, well, a little bit slower. So, I mean, I remember being on the email thread and basically it's about getting money to the venues and the people who work there. But how did you decide you were going to have legislation? How did you decide what was going to be in the legislation? How did you decide who was going to be the first mover? So we weren't even thinking legislation at the beginning. We were just thinking, okay, there's going to be another CARES bill. We want to get in that CARES bill. Because we had read the first CARES bill and saw, oh, wait, there's a separate provision for restaurants. So that's how we knew it was possible. We're like, if they're doing something for restaurants, they can do something for venues because we don't have takeout. You know, they went down 30, 40%. We were down to 0%. So we're like, we need something in that bill. Okay, how do you get something in a bill? You got to hire a lobbyist. So I called around to the folks I knew who might. Whoa, 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 a little bit slower. How did you become the point person? I think I was, I, that's a really good question. Um, maybe just because I was super passionate and, you know, making a lot of the calls and had a vision and, and was determined to really get this thing done. Um, and so just, I think de facto fell into that role of quarterback. Um, oh, okay. So basically everybody was, did they say Dana, you go. Or all of a sudden, everybody was doing different stuff. And they said, well, Dana's doing stuff. Let's fall behind her. I think at that time, no one really knew what to do. So when somebody came, you know, with a plan and with, okay, this is what we're going to do. It really, you know, again, like I said, everybody was really willing to contribute and willing to contribute where they were needed and with what was necessary at the time. From the initial IVW meetings, we there were five of us that were elected to the board. Um, and so each of us had, I think, different interests. And like I said, my interest was in advocacy and in getting some federal support for the venues. And so I became the advocacy chair. And we took from the initial emails of people that signed up for NEVA um, through, again, the great leadership of Audrey Fick Schaefer and Gary Witt. Um, I just sent a mass email to anyone who said they were interested in lobbying. And so we formed the, ad the, the advocacy committee and then we broke it down into states because part of the idea behind going for federal support was, you know, at First Avenue, we know what we mean in Minnesota and we know the relationships we have locally. You know, we have had nothing federally, but we knew locally how beloved and and how people would be really, really interested and anxious to help us. And so we just said, you know, there's first avenues in every city that have these kinds of relationships. So we broke it down into a precinct captain system and said, okay, you know, we'll have a few of us that are kind of overseeing the national strategy, but everybody on the ground, it, the really main commitment was to get your local congressperson and your senator invested in our cause and wanting to help us. So how did you end up hiring a lobbyist? We got very early financial support from sea tickets. We had nothing, right? We, we had a lot of people and a lot of people with time and willingness to work, but we had no resources whatsoever. So we got some early financial support. We There were about six of us 
that gathered as the, you know, kind of de facto selection or search committee. Um, we each kind of reached out to people that we knew. I mean, you know, at, at the beginning, I, I can't really kind of overstate how, how frantic and how hard everyone worked and what just kind of a desperate time it was. But it was like, okay, we need a federal lobbyist. I called to the, you know, kind of bigger promoters that I thought might be doing something in DC. No one had a federal lobbyist. So I was like, wait, who do I don't know anyone in DC. I'm from Minnesota. What am I going to do? I'm like, wait, the 930 club. And so I happened to have been sitting next to Audrey Fick Schaefer at a dinner a few nights before, a few months before, and just sent her a Facebook message saying, Hey, you're in DC. Do you know a lobbyist? So, you know, she joined up and, um, and we really just, you know, again, everybody reached into their networks, came, came up with the names that we could find. Um, and I think our, the lobbyists that we found, Aiken Gump, the best, Casey Higgins and Ed Pagano, the best lobbyists in the entire world. Um, we found them because somebody on a group chain I was in said that Paul Ryan's office was giving PPP advice. So I was like, well, I can't call Paul, Paul Ryan's office. I'm from Minneapolis, but I know somebody from Milwaukee. Um, so Gary Witt, you know, called up Paul Ryan's office and was referred to Casey Higgins. Uh, and that's how we, we got to Casey. Tell us about Casey and his firm. Mm. Her firm is. Her firm, Gump. excuse me. Yeah, no, no. Um, so they're a huge, you know, top, I, I don't know that much about law firms, but a, a top firm um, and really became invested in our cause. And I think how passionate. Law, wait, law firm or lobbying firm? Well, the the lo- uh, lobbyists are, are lawyers. So it's a law firm that also has a. So all the lobbyists are lawyers. I might be overstating that, but I believe most of the major lobbying firms are law firms. Okay. And so this law firm, they're representing Neva. How many other clients do they have? Oh, oh, uh, hundreds, but thank God the conflict check checked out. (laughs) So that, that was very fortunate for us. And so then what kind of an agreement do you make with the uh, lobbying firm? Yep. Yeah. So we had a monthly retainer and they got to work immediately. I, I think from our first call, you know, really guiding the strategy and setting out how we were going to tell our stories. I just, I'll never forget, you know, they did a lobbying 101 for, for our NEVA members, like how to talk to your member of Congress, you know, because most folks had never been involved in anything like this. You know, we're used to hosting fundraisers, maybe, you know, talking to our city council people, but you know, in terms of federal lobbying, it, it was all new. So, okay, how do you talk to a congressperson? You know, like a real person. It would, it, it's pretty surprising. Um, and sharing our stories. And I, I was going to say fortunately, but really it's unfortunately, you know, we had kind of the, the most authentic sob story of all sob stories. You know, during the pandemic, people were, cashing out their 401ks. They were remortgaging their houses. They were um, doing everything imaginable and anything they could to just try to hang on one more month, two more months. Uh, so, you know, those were the stories that we told. And on top of that, the impact that we have in our communities. And we were, you know, really fortunate that we had built, you know, almost every independent venue has built really strong, deep-rooted community relationships. So, you know, I was on a call with uh, 
a congressperson from rural uh, or yeah, the the valley in um, California. And so it wasn't just the historic theater on the call. It was also the director of the Chamber of Commerce and the local hotel and the restaurant next door. And they were all advocating for Save Our Stages and for helping the theater because without the theater, they wouldn't have any business either. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Okay, you go to the lobbying firm. We hear all the time that the lobbying firm writes the legislation. Is that what happened? I think the staffers wrote the right. The, the, the staffers wrote the legislation, but the staffers for the lobbying firm or the staffers for the elected officials. The the Senate officials. Yeah, yeah, the Senate staffers. Okay, so you have lobbying one on one from the lobby uh, firm you hire. And do they tell everybody in Neva to talk to their people? Do they say what the agenda is? Right. So we organized into a precinct captain system. So the folks that initially had said they were interested in lobbying, they we all joined on, I think we were talking three times a week. We were in constant communication. And so there was one kind of leader for every state or 
um, districts. So we had like, you know, Northern California and Southern California. And those folks were responsible for coordinating amongst all of the NEVA venues in their district. So, you know, it'd be pretty hard to have a thousand people on a call trying to stay organized and stay productive. So, you know, we, again, we had a more of a structured system. So we would talk to, you know, Jen Lyons in New York, and then she would coordinate with all the New York venues to go in and talk to Senator Schumer or Senator Gillibrand. That's how we organized. Okay. Okay. Very practically, you have these precinct captains. You then want to hit every member of Congress and you want to tell them what story. You just want to say, give me money, or do you go there with an agenda? We need X, Y, Q. Yep. I believe we hit 95% of members of Congress. I think we even had a a representative from Guam. Um, So we, you know, our motto is no no stone left unturned because it's, you know, easy to sit here in 2024 and look back and say, oh, of course we were going to get the bill. We had, there was no assurances whatsoever that we were going to get anything. And so we left literally no stone unturned. If there was anyone to talk to, we would talk to them. Um, I think one one of our members actually found out the running route of her senator and put up yard signs along the running route to get his attention. Um, and so, yep, we went in and and the kind of agenda or strategy we followed was, you know, tell your personal story, tell your economic impact. Uh, Gary Witt from Pabst Theater Group in Milwaukee had, you know, came initially with a stat that he had read in a Chicago paper really recently before the pandemic shutdown said $1 of every $1 spent on a ticket in a small venue equaled $12 of economic impact. So we used that stat. It was, it was done, you know, an official study by the Chicago loop. So it was documented. We didn't, uh, we didn't make it up, but um, we used that number to measure our economic impact and went in with, not only just our personal stories of like, this is how long I've been in business. This is, you know, how much I've mortgaged on my house. This is how many employees I have. Um, But also, you know, this was my economic impact. This is what I've uh, generated in uh, revenue and jobs for my community. Okay. So you go and you hit all these Congress people. Are you just telling a story or do you say we want X? We always had an ask. That was rule. Rule number one is, you know, you go and you tell your story, but there's always an end with, will you sign our letter? Will you co-sponsor our legislation? Will you, if you've already co-sponsored, will you call two people and help convince them to co-sponsor? You know, always leaving with a tangible way that somebody can help us. How does it turn from a want hiring the lobbying firm to an actual piece of legislation. When you're saying, will you sign our legislation? Where does legislation come from? Yeah, it was actually um, the senators. We sent out, uh, you know, again, along with like, there's there's so many industry partners and thank you again to every everyone I feel like listening to this probably helped in some way. Um, so we just, again, we, we first sent a letter just saying, hey, hey, Congress, we need help. We're totally shut down. The only thing that's going to get us through is, is you, uh, to, you know, doing a dear colleague letter. So we had, I think 49 senators send a letter to leadership saying, Hey, leadership, you should take these guys seriously. Um, and then there was a bill that was introduced by 
Senators Bennett and Young called the Restart Act that would help businesses disproportionately disadvantaged. So, you know, our, um, you know, our thought process was that PPP helped all businesses equally. Well, we were the most disadvantaged. We were had no revenue. We needed more help than other businesses. And so Restart actually had a formula that it would help give you grants based on how much your, your revenue was down. So we loved that. So we're like, okay, this is, we're going to advocate for this bill. So we had all the NEVA members sent emails out to their email lists, you know, saying, Hey, you can email your senators this way. And along with some industry partners that also sent emails out to their email list, we ended up getting 2.2 million emails into Congress. It was just an un, unreal level of support from our, from our customers and concert goers. Um, and so when those emails started flooding into the offices, all of a sudden we started getting a lot of attention and um, Senators Cornyn and Klobuchar actually said, okay, I think it's time for your own bill. And so we didn't, again, this, it was our dream of all dreams, but it was generated by them. Okay. How does it work with the Senate vis-a-vis the House? Oh, great question. So they, it has to pass both houses. I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to remember my, uh, what was it, Schoolhouse Rock, how a bill becomes a law. So the bill has to pass both houses. So we introduced in the Senate first, and then we had a House companion that was the same bill. And so when they both passed, then it goes to the president's desk. Okay. Sometimes the bills are different and there has to be some kind of reconciliation. That was not a factor here? So we actually didn't, we didn't pass as a standalone bill. We passed as part of the package. So the package passed the Senate and then I believe it passed the House, but the inclusion was similar and I'm having to really stretch into my memory. Uh, I, so yeah, it was end of December that it ended up, uh, the package ended up going through. December of? 2020. Right. Did you get what you wanted? Absolutely. I mean, we're still in business, right? That's the the ultimate test in how successful this legislation was, is that, you know, we had very few NEVA members closed for financial purposes um, and folks are still around to reopen and to fight another day. Okay. Just to drill down, what did First Avenue get from PPP and what did you get from Save Our Stages? Um. I don't remember the exact numbers. I think amongst our six venues, we got around 10 million, I believe, from the Save Our Stages grants. Well, let me ask you a different way. You have venues. They have operating costs. You have employees. What did PPP cover? Oh, PPP covered maybe a month, maybe maybe two months of our operating expenses. Like it, it was very insubstantial. Then when you got Save Our Stages, what percentage did it cover then? Or did it just allow you to keep the doors open, so to speak? Yeah, it was able to cover our expenses. You know, going back, we were closed 18 months. Um, and it allowed us to reopen and rehire. You know, rehiring and reopening is, is you know, ungodly amounts of expenses. We didn't have any employees, right? You have to go through all of the onboarding process, all the rehiring process, all the the cleaning processes, the new filters, um, some other like, you know, improvements to the room due to COVID, et cetera. 
Um, and so it allowed us to do that. And, and to then also, when we first came back, there were, you know, the, there were some losses, you know, in, in the first few months of opening that allowed us to cover that. Okay. So between PPP and Save Our Stages, did the people lose money, break even, or make money? Well, the way the formula worked is you were only allowed to spend your spend the money on operating expenses. There's no way to quote unquote make money. You know, you have to show the SBA the receipts of what you spent your money on. So, I mean, unless there's no eth- you know ethical or realistic way to just kind of pocket money, right? It, it, in fact, 50% of people are still closing out their save our stages grants. So how hard was it to actually get the money in your account? Fucking impossible. I mean, it was, you know, we passed, the bill passed in end of December, 2020. Some people might remember this. There was, you know, Trump wasn't going to sign the bill. There was maybe three days of just absolute, you know, heart stopping, continued panic. And then, then he ended up signing it and it became law. Um, so we were thinking, oh, okay, SBA will, you know, get the website up the, maybe mid-February at the latest. Well, March came along and they still, you know, didn't have a website. We had to go, you know, reach out to our champions, reach out to the White House, the Economic Council to really get, get them to open up this grant and help them understand, like, there was a time when people didn't think the bill was real, right? They didn't because they had, didn't have the money in their account. They just thought, oh, it's all, you know, it's all a mirage. There's never going to be any money coming. Um, and in the meantime, the Restaurant Revitalization Act passed. They were able to get their money out the door. I think it was a much simpler equation. Um, so they got their money out the door, I think maybe even earlier than we did. So mid-April, the website went up, the website crashed. There was a sentiment amongst the industry including the performing arts folks and the museums that there wasn't going to be enough money in the bill. So we went back to Congress and got more money added. Um, And so then when it finally opened end of April, the approval process, because the restrictions were so stringent, you know, you had to prove that you sold tickets, you had to prove that you had a PA, you had to prove um, your revenues for the past few years. Um, You know, I think at First Avenue, I don't think we got our, the money deposited in our account until maybe September, 2021. Wow. So is there anybody who ultimately got left out and there are other people where the steps were so onerous, they just gave up or couldn't figure it out? You know, a lot of folks we heard actually applied or some folks, I should say, applied for the Restaurant Revitalization Act. There you had to have, I think, 33% food. So some folks opted to just to just go for the Restaurant Act. Um, and so... You know, I think in terms of folks getting left out, I think it was more industries like the gyms. I think maybe they felt left out or um, I'm trying to remember who else was advocating at the time. But in terms of NEVA members, I I believe almost all NEVA members were able to secure grants. Okay, so let's jump forward. You talked about the drop rates going down. Explain for those who are not sophisticated what drop rates are. Right. So a drop count is how we measure what percentage of ticket buyers actually 
show up, scan their tickets and enter the venue. So it's really important, especially to clubs and uh, theaters who make their money on the ancillaries and people in the venue buying beer um, and spending money in the venue. So if you sell a ticket to somebody that doesn't show up, that's, that's effectively lost revenue for us. So before COVID, you know, we had a no-show rate of maybe 5%, 4 or 5%. Well, post-COVID, we started seeing no-show rates. You know, initially during Omicron, it was sometimes up to 50%. But, you know, once the industry and, and society kind of got back to normal life, we were still seeing no-show rates of 15 to 20%, which is a crisis, again, if you're relying on those beer sales to, to pay your rent. Then what did you do when you noticed these bad numbers? Yeah. So first, you know, we just went, I think, I think I went to Casey and just said, Hey, we're seeing this. This is a huge problem for us. Um, what do you, is there, you know, what can we do legislatively about it? Because we started, you know, discussing amongst ourselves and realizing that these tickets are sitting on the secondary market. And so, you know, if you sell a ticket to a broker, well, sometimes they're more invested in selling. If they buy 20 tickets, they're more invested in selling five tickets for, you know, $500 versus 20 tickets for $200. Um, And so that's, you know, again, works out all fine and well for the brokers, but for the venues, that's a huge problem. And so we started, you know, kind of linking that and linking also, you know, Googling our venues and seeing that sometimes our box office web pages and our ticket, our official ticket sellers were way down and our customers were, you know, buying tickets from folks that they thought were us that weren't really us. Um, and so that combined led us to go and, and talk to Casey and Aiken Gump and Ed Pagano and say, okay, what can we do about this? Cause you know, you don't, not everything can be a crisis, but this, this is, has the potential to be another oncoming crisis. Okay. Once again, you have the Senate in the house is this an independent bill or is this part of another bill? Right now, it's an independent bill. We're working hard to get co-sponsors in the Senate. There is a House bill that is a different bill that's called the Ticket Act that has some some of the similar provisions like all-in pricing and banning spec tickets and predatory and deceptive practices. You know, we think the Fans First Act has much stricter penalties and the language within each of those categories goes further to protect our fans. So, you know, we're waiting to see what the packages might be March, April, to, you know, to see about inclusion and to see what we can do to, to get it past both houses. Okay. What is co-sponsoring at? What is it at right now? No, what does it do for the bill? Oh, it shows that we have momentum, that we have, you know, people and politicians, I should say, that believe in this and that will vote for it and that are invested in it and just goes to show general support. Okay. You know, this is Washington, D.C. We read every day in the paper. People say one thing publicly and another thing privately. How hard is it to get someone to go on the record and say, hey, yeah, I'll do that? How hard is it? It's not easy. It's, de- it's definitely not easy. Um, I think that... You know, as independent venues and our partners and the, the Fix the Ticks Coalition, which includes, you know, the performing arts and um, the bigger venues and 
independent ticket sellers and you know folks throughout the industry. Um, I think we have an important voice and and we have an important story. And I do think that we have the right bill. You know, we started with the goal of you know trying to um, cap resale at you know ten percent above face or you know, trying to do some more protective measures and realizing the political infeasibility of it. I think we have the bill right now that is passable, that is a no-brainer. Like I said, it's a, an important first piece of the puzzle. I don't believe comprehensive ticketing legislation has ever even gotten this far yet. So to show that we can pass a comprehensive ticketing bill, that this is important and that does go, you know, take that important first step in protecting your customers I think we have the right story. We have the right bill and we're going to get to work and make it happen. Okay. Is the lobbyist, the person who's always into the nitty gritty with the elected officials, or do you or other individuals from the organization actually get into the trenches too? So the lobbyists are definitely, you know, again, they're most knowledgeable in terms of like bill language and how to, um, phrase what we want in, in the legal terms that that make a, a bill effective. Um, certainly myself and Stephen Parker, the executive director of NEVA and um, the other advocacy committee leadership can talk in the nitty gritty, I think. However, our voice is probably most effective as business owners and, and effective constituents. So do you personally talk to Amy Klobuchar? Whenever I am so lucky, absolutely. I think she's the best. Why is she the best? And when you do, how often would you talk to her? And what would be the agenda? Like, hey, good seeing you, Amy. Let's talk about the weather. Or do you get down into what you're looking for? <laughs> um, you know, I think she's the best because she absolutely fights for what she believes in. And she doesn't give up until she gets it done. You know, there's a reason why I, I, I think she's the um, most effective legislator, right? And she just really cares. And, and you know, throughout the Save Our Stages process and throughout COVID, like she really cared about our industry. She cared about my employees. She cared about making sure we were reopened. And she, you know, again, like us, left no stone unturned and did everything possible to make sure that that bill was passed. Let me recap. In the last 12 months, how many times have you spoken or been one-on-one with Amy Klobuchar? Oh, less than a handful. No, we're not like having dinner or drinks. <laughs> witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 infinity qx80 join us march 20th live from the edge at hudson yards in new york city Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Beavis spearheading this bill. Not everybody has the same agenda. What did the brokers in the secondary market have to say? Right. So, you know, I do think it's important that before we even started this effort, we put together the Fix the Ticks Coalition, which has 30 members, you know, from throughout the industry, from the Recording Academy and the artist groups that have, you know, as important, if not a more important voice in this than we do you know, to the, to Nito and to the performing arts groups, independent ticket sellers, like I said. Um, and so I think it's important to have that coalition again, knowing that the brokers and the secondaries, they just, their resources seem, seem to be endless. And they've been at this a lot longer than we have, you know, Neva has been, you know, lobbying for what's January 24th for four years or so. I mean, the secondaries have been having these really have having these conversations and have these relationships going back decades or more. So we definitely are, are playing catch up, especially on this topic. Okay. Do the secondaries have their own lobbyists in relationship with elected officials? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Very strong ones. So when you're having this bill, are they literally part of the mix or are they just going behind the scenes to the people who are supporting them saying, hey, we don't want this? You know, I'm not ex entirely sure. I know that they're running a public campaign. I forgot what their alliance is called. Um, but, you know, again, we think that we have the right bill. We have a very compromised kind of no brainer solution that would bring transparency and some, uh, you know, clarity to our customers. And like I said, what we started out with, like on a fire and brimstone of, you know, of the secondary market, we compromised in order to get something passed. We thought that was really important. You know, we're not interested in like a, what they call a messaging bill, right? Which is a bill that's introduced that has no chance of passing, but, you know, you just, you want to get it on the record. You know, we're not interested in that. We're all, all of us at Nevo, we have other jobs. We're running businesses. We're promoting shows. Like if we, take our time and effort to introduce a bill. We want to make sure that it's passable. Okay. People think ticketing is easy, but it's very complicated. I've had my own interaction with the government and even people who were there dedicated to this, I'm stunned they don't understand it. 
So Congress people, do they understand ticketing? It's interesting to me how many, especially staffers that we talk to that have their own experience. They're ticket buyers, right? They're our customers. You know, they're going to shows. And so they have a really good knowledge of it from the customer side, which sometimes, you know, promoters and and venues, sometimes we don't even have that perspective of it. Um, As far as like the intricacies of the market, some, some do. And most of, you know, everyone we've talked to, especially is, is very smart. And as soon as we explain it, they get it immediately. Okay. You went undercover to the broker conference. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. So I was able to use a friend's, a friend's name and credit card and walk around the floor of the conference and was just totally in shock at the tools that they have in order to access our tickets, like unprecedented, unimaginable ways to get their hands on our tickets. As much as we try to, you know, put ticket limits and put zip code restrictions and put um, all all non-transferability, anything we try to do, there's a workaround. And I was even more surprised walking around and that they're just advertising it in plain sight, right? Like, you know, for instance, ghost browsers. So you can open up more than 50 different tabs that all have different IP addresses. They have, you know, there's digital credit cards that don't have any kind of zip code requirements. So, you know, they were literally talking to us saying, yeah, you can have, you can, we can get you a thousand different credit card numbers and you don't even need to worry any zip code you want. Don't even worry about it. Um, their inventory management solutions are way more sophisticated than what we have, right? Like they can manage all your inventory, um, effectively, you know, hide the inventory and, and post it based on how many people are buying and the pricing algorithms based on what the pricing is across all the different secondary markets. Um, they have tools that allow that instantly access all of the pre-sale passcodes in one place and that can ping our the the ticketing companies to actually get pretty accurate ticket audits. I mean, so we're walking around and we're, you know, saying, hey, we're, you know, interested in getting more involved. We're just kind of starting out. And they said, oh, let me show you how this works. The company, the the sales rep actually pulled up one of my own shows at the palace and said, okay, here it is. This show is on this date and there's 867 tickets available. I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. So I pull up my own ticket count. And I'm like, oh my God, they were probably within 10%, you know, and then on the right side, it's okay. And here's all the different pass, the pre-sale passwords. Here's when they go on sale. You can set it up to buy automatically with your, you know, ghost browsers, with your virtual credit cards. Um, it's just, it's just insane. So it was, it became instantly illuminating you know, why we're having these drop count issues and why fans were so frustrated when they were unable to access tickets and why they're paying so much more, you know, in for their tickets that are actually going to those of us responsible for making shows happen. Is this a winnable war by the ticket company? By the ticketing companies? I, you know, it's a, it's an ongoing battle between the secondary market brokers and the ticketing companies, whatever it might be, Ticketmaster, Axis, C, you know, is this going to go on forever or is there any way that they can have enough technology 
to put a dent in this? I mean, certainly after walking that floor, it became clear that that we need a legislative solution because any tech that we can come up with, you know, they can instantly combat because they don't have the stress or the uh, the financial strain of actually having to put on shows. They can put 100% of their resources into just getting our tickets, right? So, you know, again, the, you know, I'm in Minneapolis, we have... We're doing 1,100, 1,200 shows a year. We're servicing customers. Um, we have a, a busy, stressful business to then, you know, try to also go above and beyond. And, you know, we do the very best we can while still actually having, you know, having a business at, to which to protect. Um, I do think it's winnable. I think that this is the story that we need to tell. And I think the customers, you know, realizing when they come to the door that they paid $80 for a ticket that's available at the door for 25, right? That happens almost every show or realizing that they didn't, when the show is canceled, they didn't get a refund because they bought it from a broker that has no legal obligation to refund them. Right. I think there's very kind of, there are problems that are becoming more and more apparent that are customer facing and not just industry facing. So, you're focusing on legislation to solve this problem. Do you believe technology can solve the problem? You know, I am not smart enough to about the technological aspects. I certainly hope so. All you smart tech people listening to the podcast, please. Also, another important part of the puzzle, right? Okay, you go to this convention. I'm, I'm just interested. A, how many people are there? B, you're an attractive young woman. Do they say, what's she doing here? Or are there a lot of women there? Uh, I was definitely one of the only, one of the only women in the room. Uh, I, was, I thought I was going to get called out immediately because certainly uh, it was a lot of bros. It was a lot of bros. Um, so there were maybe 800 or so. And it seems to be mostly about the trade floor and about... You know, they had like maybe one or two panels a day, right, at NevaCon, which I'll give a small plug for everybody to come to the Neva conference in New Orleans in early June. But, you know, it's about learning. It's about bettering your business. We have, you know, dozens and dozens of panels throughout the entire day. Um, that's, they had, you know, maybe two panels a day and seemed to be mostly about networking and, and discovering the new technological resources available. Um, but, you know, I tried to wear a hat and keep my head down and, and just try to learn and, and glean as much information as I could. Okay. Just to be clear, let's say you have a show to make the numbers easy. We'll call it a thousand tickets and we'll say the ticket was $20 and use your example and people spend $80 on the secondary market. Do you find that no matter how well the show is doing, it's one thing if the show's going clean, if it's selling out, okay, tickets are hard to get. But let's just assume the show is doing 75% of capacity. Are people still being confused and paying more on the secondary market? Absolutely. I mean, last I checked, every single one of our shows was listed on secondary market. So even the ones at the smaller capacity rooms, you know, that, that maybe were under half sold. So, and without a doubt, because of the way that the advertisements are working, that most people, from what I've, I believe I read a stat that 40% of people 
buy their tickets by just clicking the first link in Google, right? And so as an independent venue, like we don't have the resources to outbid the secondaries, you know, if you, they, you know, buying up the keywords like events and tickets. And, um, and so, you know, when you go to those secondaries, sometimes the tickets are lower that that's, you know, their talking point, but, you know, on average, there was a government study. I think it's a, it was about 27% over face value on average. And so from our perspective, that takes money out of the pockets of our customers. And what we're trying to do at the club level as an independence, we're trying to build a long-term sustainable community and ecosystem of live music obsessed concert goers that don't just want to go to one show a year, right? They want to go to concerts as a lifestyle and they want to take risks on going to see new bands and view going to a concert the way they would, you know, going to the movies or going to a restaurant. And so if you spend, you know, 27, 50% more, that takes the money out of your pocket that you can spend discovering these new bands and really making concerts a lifestyle. Now, I believe you said previously that the brokers are so sophisticated, they can even replicate your website. Yeah, for a while, I'm not sure if it's still up, but for a while, there was a website called firstavenueboxoffice.com. Well, that that wasn't us. The branding, the I want to say the logo, that's another thing that the fans first act, you know, you couldn't you can't use logos, you can't use photos of the venue, you can't do anything to try to represent yourself as an official seller. Um so, you know, you can you could go to firstavenueboxoffice.com and have no idea that you're not actually buying from First Avenue. Okay, let's just go a little bit more into ticketing. When you look deeply, frequently everybody has dirty hands. You have the uh, customer who's complaining, and then you say, when you want to do something, what we used to call paperless or tie it to their phone, whatever, they're pissed off because they can't buy multiple tickets and scalp them themselves. So, what about locking tickets down to individuals? Is that something that you can do, want to do, or is that ship sailed? I mean, in terms of A, knowing who's in the room, that would be incredibly helpful. You know, sometimes you have emergency situations, you have bands that are giving us, you know, stalker lists that they don't want let in. It would be incredible to have the information for everybody in the room. Um, in terms of trying to get people in the door quickly that probably you know there's a there's a balance there um but i i do also think customers want to just have you know four tickets on their phone and scan them all together and, and have an ease of purchase and an ease of concert going as well i guess what i'm saying is do you view customer secondary market scalping as an issue you want to address you know, I, we're mostly concerned with industrial level, level scalpers. You know, if somebody bought a ticket, they intended to go to the show, they couldn't find a babysitter and they want to make an extra 10 bucks off that ticket. I, I don't know if anyone, I certainly don't have an issue with that. You know, we're at, at Neva really concerned though about, you know, again, the industrial level, level scalpers that are using these really sophisticated tools to uh, build customers kind of, on, on mass. You have seven venues. How many different ticketing companies do you use? Um, we use one venue. We have a great partner in access, uh, at our six venues. We do promote shows in outside rooms. And so, you know, we'll use the ticketing system that those rooms use. 
let's say you own First Avenue. So traditionally, a ticketing company would pay the venue for an exclusive. And that's where a lot of the fee comes from. So if you're with Axis, how do you negotiate the fee? That was uh, negotiated under very... Um, I, I think we negotiated our contract in 2020. So very kind of stressful terms. But again, I think everybody looks for different things in their partners, right? Like uh, some folks that are maybe more consu- more concerned with, with brokers will go for some solutions that allow for like a wait list or, um, you know, that don't allow people to resell. Some people want the the reach and the uh, kind of broad marketplace the Ticketmaster has. Some people want to go with whoever the dominant um, seller in their market is to try to, again, get in front of more eyes. We really, again, liked the team at Access, love Steph Streeter, love Brian, um, and felt like they were the best um, they were the best partner for our business. Okay, but a lot of the shows you do, the club shows, are the ones that get the most attention for fees. It's one thing if you have a $100 ticket and the fee is $15. It's another thing if you have a $20 ticket and the fees are $15. I don't think at First Avenue we have $15 fees on $20 tickets. I will go, I will go and check that right after. I'm not saying um, that you have specific, but I, you know, in terms of markets all over the US, this happens on a regular basis. Right. Um, and so again, like the fees is negotiated between the promoter of the venue and their ticketing provider. Um, and so I'm not privy to, to how people necessarily set their fees, but certainly, you know, it's, um, a key factor. I would say when people pick up a ticketing partner. Okay. So let's say first Avenue, you own the building. Let's say for a sake of discussion, the ticket is $20. Every show is a little bit different, but what would be the average fee on that ticket? Uh, probably $4. Okay. So very low. Okay. So club business, if you go back before your time, frequently was supported by the record companies. The record companies would buy tickets. They would put small bands on the road. That's pretty much evaporated. So therefore a lot of clubs went out of business. So what is the status of small venues today economically oh it's hard it it's difficult um you know the bands are amazing i feel like there is a kind of proliferation of club level bands and and due to streaming folks have kind of easier discovery tools potentially in in finding bands but the economics of a club is just i mean i don't think it's ever been harder even at first avenue i want to say our costs are up 30% 30% from pre-pandemic, uh, you know, everything's gone up due to inflation. Insurance is insane. Um, you know, just all of the costs keep going up and you don't want to pass it on to your customers hundred percent because you want them to, again, like enjoy going to a show and feel like they can afford to go to, you know, we like to hopefully get people out to shows once or twice a month. Right. And so you want them to have a good experience. You, you don't want them to feel like, uh, somebody described a club they went into that they said it felt like a a money tornado. Like when you walked in the door, they just, you know, they were picking you up and 
spinning around trying to get every dollar out of your pocket. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to do that. Um, but the, the strains on running probably, you know, any small business these days are pretty intense. So what's the overall margin? I mean, at, we try to hit 6% profit margin. That's our goal. Wow. That's really low. What about merch? Do you take a percentage of merch? Uh, we vary based on the rooms. You know, merch is negotiated as a deal point um, between the bookers and, and the agents when they're working out the deal. Okay. Because there is blowback, especially from smaller acts saying, hey, we're there, we're struggling. Why don't we get 100% of the merch? What would you say to them? Yeah. I mean, I hear that. And I, you know, the, the counter argument to that is, you know, there's areas in the venue that are reserved. There are expenses that go along with processing merch. Like I said, it's a deal point. And we like to view it as, you know, we're an ecosystem. We're in this together to make it profitable for the band, to make sure that the venues can still stay in business, to make sure the customers still have a great experience. And so, you know, it all goes into the, the economics of a deal and making a show work for, for all parties. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. There have been all these stories in the media about younger generations consuming less alcohol. 
To what degree has that affected your business? To what degree do you see it? We see it hugely. I think I was on a panel, I was on a music biz panel and kind of threw out that point, what I thought was kind of like a, a throwaway point and actually get it ended up getting picked up by by Billboard and and had some TikTok memes. Um, so we're seeing it especially in our younger audience. You know, the the older audience, they're still drinking two show two two beers, two drinks per person. Um, but the younger audience, you know, the the bars are just anemic these days. And so there's a, a few different theories floating around. One is just edibles and it's much cheaper and easier to, you know, pop an edible than it is to spend 10 bucks on a beer, or 10 bucks on a drink. Um, the other theory is that, you know, this generation, they spent their formative uh, kind of drinking education years in COVID. And so they might not even, they don't necessarily know what they drink. They don't know what they like to drink. They don't know the, um, the structure, the systems of going up to a bar and ordering. And, and that might be a little bit overwhelming. And so they just choose to not engage at all. Obviously, there's a mental health or a, a wellness, um, which is beyond important. And um, and not drinking seems to, uh, I don't I would say that it's great for your mental health and wellness, but not everyone seems to agree these days. Um, so there's a number of different factors that I think going into effect of seeing seeing our bar numbers at maybe half some some shows half to uh a third of what they would have been pre-pandemic do you just own that or do you f- think of some other way to make up the revenue you have to make up the revenue i mean if you don't make up the revenue you're not going to be in business right so you know a lot of folks are i think after after the billboard article came out i got every single na option under the sun reaching out. So certainly, you know, increasing the NA options. Non-alcoholic. Sorry, yes, non-alcoholic. So non-alcoholic beers, uh, non-alcoholic cocktails, uh, root beer, et cetera. Um, So also we're, you know, advertising more like drink specials to make it easy to order at the bar. Like, okay, here's here's the drink of the night. You don't need to think about what you're ordering. You don't need to stress out about it. Here, here's, two options that you choose from. And so trying a very, you know, a varied degree. So how did you end up owning and running First Avenue? Um, so my father was part of, was best friends with the founder uh, named Alan Fingerhut. They were, they would actually went to elementary school together. Um, so they were best friends in 1970 when Alan inherited a bunch of money and thought it would be a great idea to open a rock club. And so my dad uh, came from a very, you know, working class. His parents owned a little corner grocery store. Um, He went to the University of Minnesota, got his accounting degree. Um, And so he, you know, worked on the books and was kind of a business confidant to Alan. Um, So first I opened in 1970 and then was run locally for a couple of years and then run by a, a company out of Kansas City was renamed Uncle Sam's till it then became First Avenue and the ownership of the operations came in-house. Um, and so my dad was, you know, kind of loosely associated with Alan in the club until 2004 when they had a falling out and they actually were part of a ownership group that purchased the property in 2000. And so as part of the legal settlement for their 
uh, falling out. My dad ended up with the property. Alan, Alan ended up with the operations. Uh, I think less than a year after that, I want to say, the operations went into bankruptcy. And so my dad, as the landlord, was able to purchase the assets out of bankruptcy in 2004. Um, I was working in Los Angeles, working in TV and film production when he had a stroke in 2009. And so I hadn't been home in a while. And I, I flew home and stepped in the club and just fell in love with the main room and what First Avenue was and what it means to the people in Minneapolis and the impact it has and um, everything that it's about. And, and started kind of working under him then. Okay. So when you were growing up, was your father just the accountant for the club? Or was it like, hey, you can get into the club whenever you want, and you went all the time and took your friends? Yeah, sorry, I said that long story. Like, I did not grow up as, you know, the daughter of a rock club owner. Certainly not how my kids are growing up, right? Where it's a cold, snowy day, let's take a soccer ball and, and kick it around the main room. Um, but I grew up being obsessed with going to concerts and actually having my dad involved in the club actually was a negative for me because I, you know, I would sneak out of the house and take the bus downtown and show up at the club to go to concerts and kind of like put my hair over my face and, and, and try to hope no one recognized me so that they wouldn't call my dad to come and pick me up. Okay. You go to college in New York. People have no idea how sophisticated Minnesota is. Although I will say as cold as it is in the winter, that's how fucking hot it is in the summer. But what do people not understand about Minnesota? Um, first of all, it is 35 degrees today in January and it feels like a fucking miracle. So it, it's not always cold in the winter. Um, People, what don't people understand? I mean, it is heaven on earth. I think there's no better place in the world than Minnesota in like June, July. So what the winter gives us, yes, yes, it is cold. It is usually exceptionally cold, but it gives us a hardiness and an optimism and a real sense of gratitude because then the summer comes and it's like everyone's in a good mood. You're enjoying every minute. It is, you know, it gives you a sense of seasons. It gives you a sense of inevitability. Um, you know, I'm raising my kids here and I, I am so grateful for their ability to grow up in Minnesota because in a world where you have everything at the tip of your fingertips and everything is kind of designed around comfort, I think it's incredibly important to experience cold weather and to experience, you know, elements and nature that they can't always control. To what degree do those two things affect music business? both cold in the winter and wanting to be outside in the summer? So it's interesting. We, you know, looked at our capacity sold, you know, shows in January in Minnesota do exceptionally well. There's not, a, there's not a lot of them, but the shows that we do have actually end up being, you know, 10 or 15% sold above where our shows the rest of the year are. Um, like I said, I think, having the inevitability of winter and having the experience of such extreme cold gives people a sense of joy and a sense of community. And I'm going to mispronounce it, but, um, Heige or like, like the joyousness of being together, especially in the winter that makes people more willing to go out, more willing to take risks on new bands, more willing to be a part of the live music community. You know, we hear all the time that you know, the Twin Cities punches above its weight in terms of ticket sales and in terms of interest in events. And I think 
a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, we're all here in negative 10 degree weather. We all survived it together. Um, and we want to be a part of something really cool and beautiful. So you end up leaving New York, going to Los Angeles. How was that? The weather was great. The weather was fucking phenomenal. Um, you know, I, uh, I went to NYU and I graduated right around September 11th and there weren't any jobs. And my friend, most of my friends had gone to film school and they all were moving to LA. So I moved to LA and had, you know, met some really wonderful friends. I met my wife, had a really beautiful experience, but, um, personally, I'm just beyond thrilled to be back in Minnesota. Okay. Your wife is in the film business, which is really concentrated in LA. How do you manage this? Um, yeah, she, you know, I commuted for almost a decade. I would take the red eye out on Sunday and then come back on the 750 Thursday night flight. Um, and so now we're in Minnesota. She's actually commuting. Her her job works out in New York. So she's going to New York every other week. Um, and maybe it's a secret to a happy marriage. You know, we've been together maybe 16 years and are probably happier than ever before. How'd you meet her? We were set up. Old school. Really? Blind date. Was it instant yep. romance? It took it took a few dates. I, I was just out of a relationship and she was newly sober. So we had a, we had a few months to figure all that out. And what is it like being an out powerful businesswoman today? Is to what degree is there homophobia that you encounter? I'm really lucky. I mean, I I think going from, you know, NYU to the film industry to Minneapolis, I've not encountered so much homophobia and, um, and feel like, you know, again, maybe stepping into a family business and, and stepping into a thriving business and having such a great team. It, it, I'm, I feel very fortunate to have not experienced really that much, uh, negative negative impacts due to gender sexuality what about sexism it's certainly there it's certainly there i remember you know a fair amount i'm i like to you know make relationships and and reach out and um certainly there have been a few mis <laughs> mistaken outreaches um but you know at least nothing outright that i that i can recall which I, I, again, feel like I have to just express how grateful I am because I know that's not a lot of people's experiences. Okay, so your father has this stroke. Are you coming back to Minneapolis to run the club reluctantly? Or are you saying, this is what I want to do? Or you say, well, I'll manage it for a month? What, what goes through your head? I was just stepping in to make sure, you know, nothing got messed up while he was sick. Um, and really, my thought process was, okay, there's you know, two big companies. Uh, I wonder who I'm going to sell this to. Cause I was pretty happy in my career and I just met my wife and pretty settled. Um, and so I was like, okay, I wonder, you know, which live nature AG, I wonder this will, this will be fun. Who's, who's going to be the highest bidder. Um, and again, like I said, I just stepped into the main room and, and kind of the impact of what first Avenue is, what it means, the, the legacy that it carries just w was really intense. And so, you know, when I met these folks and I think one of the quotes was, 
you know, so I said, okay, well, if you're interested, why don't you come to Minneapolis, see the room, see what's going on? And, and they said, well, I don't need to see it. A club's a club. My guys say it's good. And that was the moment I said, okay, I'm just going to have to do it. This, this can't happen. And you have a sibling too, right? Yep. I have an older sister. She's not involved. She's in Hood River, Oregon. Okay. And to what degree is she involved financially? Uh, she's, I own a hundred percent. Okay. So this is a sophisticated business. People think, oh yeah, you sell tickets, you open the door, you make money. So the, your father is out of the picture for a while. You're there. How do you come up to speed and what mistakes do you make? Oh, every mistake, every mistake under the book. Um, I was lucky that my dad ended up uh, recovering within a few months. And so I really got, you know, to learn under him and to watch him manage. Um, but in terms of I, I also am not a talent buyer. And that I think is the hardest job in the world and really the, the quarterback of the music club world. Um, so I, again, was so lucky to step in. I the most incredible team at First Avenue, Nate and Sonia and Ashley, just really, uh, really incredible, incredible folks. So how long does a concert buyer last at First Avenue? How long, like how long are they in the venue? No, how, yeah, how long before they move on? Um, uh, hopefully never. Um, uh, the concert buyers, I mean, the thing about Minnesota is people, it, we call it a boomerang state because people who grew up here, even if they leave, like like me, they tend to come back. And once people move here, they tend to to not leave because it's it it's so amazing as I've talked about before. Um, and so we have our customers, you know, from the time that they first discover live music, I don't know, 14, 15, we do, you know, the rock and roll playhouse for kids, you know, music. We so we try to get them at age two, right? Wait, wait, tell um, us about the then, rock and roll playhouse. Oh, it's really amazing. Um, you know, working with the Brooklyn Bowl folks. But uh so it's Saturday or Sunday mornings, a theme. So Taylor Swift for kids or you know, my son, I have a, a nine-year-old son. He's obsessed with Green Day. Like it's all, all he listens to, all he ever wants to play. It's just his, the, the be all and end all of his musical experience right now. Um, so we did the, you know, Rock and Roll Playhouse plays Green Day. And it was all punk music and kids showing up in Mohawks. It was the most fun. Um, and really kids just get to come and run around. I think our theory is, well, they can't do any, they can't do much worse damage than drunk people can do. So this, this won't be that big of a deal. Um, and you know, like I said, we see concert going and we see the live music experience as being a lifestyle, not just something you do, not just, you know, uh, it, not just something to avoid your everyday life, but really like as kind of the heart and soul of what, what makes life worth living. So the earlier that we can introduce kids to that experience and have them see the joy and, and the positivity and all the amazing things that live music can do for your soul and for your well-being, the better. So let's say First Avenue, to make the numbers work, how many dates do you want a year? Yeah, so in the different venues, you know, we have different KPIs you try to hit. I think First Avenue, you uh, Tell people what that KPI is. <laughs> uh, key performance indicators. Okay. So, you know, metrics, metrics that we try to hit. Um, so we have, you know, the 7th Street entry, which is our 250 cap room. You know, we want to do 320 days. We want to effectively... I think last year, maybe we did 360 days. So we want to be open almost every day. Um, 
the main room, which is 1,550 capacity, most well-known were Prince Shot, Purple Rain, and still, you know, carrying carrying on the legacy of uh, the replacements and Husker Du and Soul Asylum and um, all the amazing bands of the Minneapolis scene. Um, that's 1550. We want to do you know, maybe 180, 190 shows a year. Um, we have a Palace Theater, which is uh, 2300. It's a GA floor and a seated balcony. You know, maybe we're trying to do 60 shows a year there. So we vary it based on the room. So you come to Minnesota, you have one venue. How do you end up with seven venues? Um, it turns out running a venue is really hard and a lot of people don't like to do it. So, you know, I stepped in in 2009. We had First Avenue in the 7th Street entry. Um, and we were booking a lot of shows outside of our venues. You know, we want to be we want to be able to service artists at every stage of their career when they come to Minnesota. If if you're just starting out, if it's your first play in the state of the country, all the way up to like building your fan base here, giving you a, a solid home base and, and helping helping them build their career um, and their fan base. So, you know, we started doing shows at rooms around town um, and we were doing a whole lot at this, this venue called the Turf Club. So, you know, the economics of the business, if you don't, oh, if you don't have the insides, it's pretty hard to make it work. Um, so we just met with the owner and he said, you know what? I got two bars and my wife says that's one too many. So we bought the turf club. Um, and then we, uh, the city of St. Paul actually came to us and wanted to open the, or renovate the palace theater. It had been dark for maybe 30 years. I'm getting to get my numbers wrong, but, um, they wanted to, they wanted to renovate it. They wanted a local partner to help promote it. So we, um, we stepped in along with our great partners from Chicago, Jam and Jerry Michelson, um, and we worked on the renovation that opened in 2017. Um, and then the we were doing a bunch of shows also at the Fine Line. Um, those folks didn't want to operate anymore, so they came to us. Uh, we have a 1,000-seat a historic theater called the Fitzgerald um, in St. Paul. Um, you know, the radio station, they didn't want to own that anymore. So we kind of became, I think, the go-tos of when people didn't want to operate their venues anymore. I think we were seen as, as good operators, good local partners, try to operate, you know, ethically and uh, well and, and with, with the full weight of the community in mind. So um, that's how, that's how we grew. And then we're developing an amphitheater um, that will start construction soon, hopefully. And so that'll be a 8,200 boutique urban amphitheater right on the Mississippi river in um, a neighborhood called North Minneapolis. It's a really kind of marginalized, disenfranchised community. So that project is aiming to be more than just a stage and and seating area, but really generating a renewal and revival for the local community as well. Okay, you're the operator. To what degree in these cases do you own the facility? Um, we own all the buildings. The We have one lease, but we own the properties for the others. Okay. And Jerry Michelson is your partner in one theater. Where did the money come for the rest of the places? Um, it came from uh, loans <laughs> and uh, it came from, you know, we, I am fortunate in that, you know, money is not my, as, as an owner is not my motivator. And so I put all profits and all revenue kind of back in, back into the companies.
Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Okay, you talk about building an amphitheater. Generally speaking, amphitheaters are controlled by Live Nation. And even people in markets where they're not have had hard times. So how do you plan to compete? That is a great question. I have all the more reason to come back on your podcast in three years and I can give you the update. Okay, then let's flip the story over. You like to be the Minnesota partner for all these acts. That used to mean... Well, you know, you played them in the club, you played them in the Excel Center. That doesn't really happen anymore, right? No, no, it doesn't. Um, and I think maybe we're the, you know, fortunate or not fortunate to not have that kind of arena backdrop. You know, we kind of started with with fresh eyes uh, a decade or so ago. Um, but certainly, um, you know, listening to your podcast and, and knowing the history of the industry, that that has been an impact for sure. And you're an independent there in the Minneapolis area. If they don't go with you, what's your competition? Live Nation and the other independent. We have other independent venues in town also. Um, but Live Nation has competing venues at most levels. And so how do you end up getting the talent as opposed to Live Nation? I think a combination of 
Um, God, you're gonna make me reveal all my secrets. I don't know if I can do that. No, um, you know. No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. Don't <laughs> say anything you don't want to say. But is it because no. you're more localized, or you have a better sales pitch, or the numbers are better? Generally, what uh, gets you uh, the talent? Like I said, I'm not a talent buyer, um, but I do think that we have the best team of anyone anywhere in the country. I mean, I, I just can't say enough amazing things about you know everyone who works at First Avenue works there because they really care you know, because they love the place and they want to see it succeed and they want to do the very best they can for, for the mission. Um, and I also think we, we, you know, we have the best rooms without a doubt. I don't, I wouldn't want to, you know, operate a room that I didn't think was the best venue of its size in the market. Um, we go out of our way to treat people really well. We are the local guys, you know, we are committed to this community. We're committing to doing everything we can to, nurture and sustain the concert going community of the Twin Cities. And so I think the, you know, bands get that. Some don't, but, you know, a lot of bands want to be a part of it. They see what we've built here. They see the job that we do. They see that, you know, they know everything is going to be 100% taken care of. All I's dotted, all T's crossed. They want to play the best rooms. We just put in, you know, the brand new state-of-the-art sound system, the first L2 installation in the country. We have you know, the best facilities and we go out of our way to create the best experiences for bands and for artists and for customers. Okay. As one goes North in Minnesota, it becomes more rural. There is Duluth. You go up North, you know, there are other things. Do you want to expand? Do you do shows there? Or are you Minneapolis, St. Paul focused? Right. We do a couple shows in Duluth. Um, I think, you know, we will try to service the artists wherever they want to play. We kind of, we view our responsibility as making sure that the artist has the best experience and plays the right room in the right city at the right town. And so we have done shows in Duluth. We've done shows, uh, like I said, at, at outdoor venues, at other folks' venues. It's not, you know, in the plans right now to build our own venue. But like I said, like we want to service the band's so if I'm coming to uh, Minneapolis and I can sell out First Avenue and I want to play more in your area, how many places can I play? Larger than First Avenue or? No, no. Like I come. I can sell out First Avenue, Minneapolis. I say, Dana, I'd like to play more in the Minnesota area. Do you say, well, you know, after you sell a thousand tickets, maybe Duluth and that's it. Or are there other markets in Minnesota that you can play? Yeah, the Twin Cities are the major metropolitan area. There is a, a 5,000 capacity amphitheater, um, you know, maybe an hour north. Uh, there's Rochester that has the Mayo. They have, they've got um, a room down there. There's Mankato. So there's other like tertiary markets that people can play in Minnesota. And that amphitheater, is that a Live Nation amphitheater? No, that's a Mammoth amphitheater. Okay. So you don't do the buying. What do you do? Um, I do the kind of management oversight, uh, business operations, new venues. The amphitheater is, is taking up, you know, a, a large majority of my time, but also kind of um, staff management and um, again, like the financial side of things. Okay. Everything's different post-COVID. But 
how often are you showing up at these venues and at these shows? Oh, I try to get to four venues a week or, you know, I, I try to go out two nights a week more, you know, in this, in the busier months. And does every employee know you? Um, most do. I'm trying to think sometimes, you know, if we have a new employee or we have about 400 employees, so I don't want to say every single one, but I like to talk to the employees. I like to introduce myself. So I try to make sure that, that I meet them. Are you working seven days a week? Yeah, of course. We all are, right? That's what I'm asking. And like <laughs> you know, there's a great line at uh, Katzenberg at Disney. If you don't come in on Saturday, don't even think about coming in on Sunday. Right. But uh, so when do you start and when do you finish? I mean, is this typical all day, all the time? You know, I am available all day, all the time. I try to eat dinner with my kids every night. So I try to, you know, be home from you know, six to eight. That's kind of my window. It's my favorite time of the entire day. It's, it's when I am, you know, my most happiest and, and just, uh, you, you know, again, seeing them getting filled in on their day. Um, so, but yeah, I'll, I'll work from 8am to, you know, midnight sometimes. So what is the future? You're the head of the, of Diva. What is the future of the small venue in the music business? Um, you know, I'm super excited. I also, you know, want to say I stepped down as board president uh, a few months ago. Andre Perry is the new board president. We have a great executive director. I'm super excited about the group purchasing organization that we're rolling out. Um, I think that the future of the small club is always going to, you know, lay in the the networking and communications and the community of talking to other folks and and seeing how other people are operating efficiently. And in working together, that was, you know, my, the, the vision and the, the kind of MO behind Neva. And I think that is going to be even more important in the next decade as we continue to hit all these struggles. Now, the boomers were the first ones who really started to go to clubs regularly with the blow up of rock and roll, et cetera. Now, as they're going into the sunset, do you feel as confident about the audience and the acts? I think I feel confident in clubs' abilities to adapt to what customers want? I think that's a really great question because we know that the younger generations, they're more you know, focused on the social media elements and, um, and sometimes on like the more like, flashier shows, if that's the right word, or like the kind of once-in-a-lifetime experiences. Um, but I have absolute faith in the power of music and the power of a song and that live music experience to totally transform somebody's life and to transform not only just their like daily experience, but in, you know, everything about their continents. And so I think that is, again, when I look at clubs, like that is the experience that we offer is for customers to come in have that really intimate experience with the artists, get to see, hear their favorite song in 3D be treated really well. And so I have absolute faith in that experience to, to transform another generation. And if you do 1200 shows a year, how many are unprofitable? <laughs> oh man. Uh, more than I would care to admit in a public podcast. <laughs> but like I said, we're, we're, um, we do shows for a lot of different reasons, right? Like we all know Minneapolis went through a really hard couple of years, it's still going through an exceptionally challenging 
time. Um, I like to keep our clubs open. I think, you know, giving folks hours to work. I know downtown Minneapolis is safer when we're open. We want to generate that economic impact for our city. We want to give people those experiences. And so we have a lot of reasons to open and to do, you know, local bands, you know, give them the experience to like play on the stage, build their audience, get some local fans to, you know, do dance nights on a night that, you know, otherwise we might be closed. You know, I like the attitude of our company to be yes. Like, yes, let's try it. We want to be experimental. We're local, we're small. Let's take some risks. Let's have some fun. So we're probably more inclined to do unprofitable shows than other folks um, because there's a, a kind of greater mission behind them. And how big is your private business? Private events? Yeah. Not hard, anything. <laughs> really? Hard, not, no. We're, we're, but we're, we're doing a lot of, you know, bands and ticketed events are our priority. And so they're always going to have, they're always going to have first priority on our calendar. They're always going to be who we want to, to cater to. And then what would you tell to young women if they wanted to get into this business? You know, I do a lot of informational interviews and mostly with young women. Um, and I would say, you know, my advice is always, you've got to work really hard. Nothing just comes to you. You know, you, it, it's fun, but it's also don't underestimate the, the time it takes and the sacrifices and, you know, the fact that like, if you want to work nine to five and, you know, go to the gym over lunch and, um, that this might not be the career for you. You know, I think people, you have to, you have to be willing to really sink your teeth into it and give it all you have. And you talked about when you first came back to Minneapolis, when your father was ill about gussying it all up to sell to live nation or AG. How long do you plan to do this? Would you ever sell? Do you see your kids running the business? You know, my kids, if, if they want to, it would be nice for them to have the option. Um, I have a lot of fun and I absolutely love, love, love what I do. Um, and I'm really proud of what we built and I love my team. Um, and so, you know, we're just really, again, um, we're enjoying what we do. We're enjoying our impact on the community. We're enjoying seeing these bands. And, you know, my favorite thing in the entire world is, you know, watching the show and, and watching people. I don't, I'll watch the show, but I'll watch people's faces and just the change and how they walk into the venue from how they walk out. And I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Two best shows since you've been an owner. Two best shows. Oh, I'm going to have to plead the fifth. Okay, just talk about one or two highlights. Okay, perfect. That's that's a great that's a great question. Um, you know, we had the pretenders in the entry in September. That was a bucket list, once in a lifetime. Just holy shit! I can't believe I am here right now. Moment. Um, I think uh, you know Lizzo came up through First Avenue, and so seeing the rise of Lizzo's career from you know when we promoted her album release show to, I don't know, a hundred people or whatever. And then, you know, watching her sell out the main room to then come into the palace and see, seeing a true superstar in the making. That was, that was a real joy to behold as well. You are so 
warm and open and smiling. If we're there settling a show, are you ever a hard ass or is this who you are 24 <laughs> seven? Well, maybe there's a reason I'm not a talent buyer, right? Um, I'm not settling that show. I'm buying you a drink and asking about how your kids are. Okay, Dana. I know that you got to go back. Keeping Minnesota's live entertainment business alive. It's been wonderful talking to you. And I know that this is just the middle for you. There's so much left to do. I want to thank you for talking to my audience. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I feel like I'm just, just getting started too. Okay. Till next time, this is Bob Left Sets. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane, back to reality. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass, or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done.